Mr. Mallin is right, said NASA engineer Jim Oberg, that most of the Leonov spacewalk movies are not genuine. They are shots underwater, shots from wire suspension training sets, shots in simulations and practices. The Russians were often careless in describing the sources of these films. The spacewalk itself was real. Today's episode is brought to you by Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients. You see, Tito, eating food from nature doesn't always mean you have to go hunting for geckos in the garden. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo to shift the food industry and empower their community and our listeners to make better, informed choices about health. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that is why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% or 15% off for military, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Go to podco.co forward slash kind. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O forward slash K-I-N-D. Once upon a time, during the frantic era of the birth of spaceflight, an unknown number of Soviet cosmonauts were lost in space or killed during re-entry while furthering the technological advancement of the Soviet Union. You may remember the recordings of the Judica Cordiglia brothers, who believed they heard the cries of multiple doomed cosmonauts whose flights and losses during the 1960s were never officially reported by the Soviet space program. Alexei Leonov was a contemporary cosmonaut who very nearly became one of those lost to the cause on March 18th of 1965. Leonov, a Soviet Air Force officer, was chosen in 1959 as part of the Soviet Union's first team of space explorers. The Soviet Union at that time was leading the Cold War space race against the United States of America and was poised to become the first nation to place human beings not only in space, but on the moon. Leonov had been training for his spacewalk for two years before the Voshkod 2 mission took place with fellow cosmonaut and primary pilot Pavel Belyevich. This would be the very first time that a human being would enter space and walk outside of their space capsule vehicle. When Alexei first stepped out of the Voshkod spacecraft and began his historical spacewalk, he was positioned over northern Sudan and southern Egypt. Twelve minutes later, he and the ship would be positioned over eastern Siberia. Connected to his capsule by a 16-foot-long tether, 
Leonov gazed at the view of Earth from orbit and said to himself, It's true. The Earth is round. It was so quiet I could even hear my heart beat, Mr. Leonov told London's Observer newspaper in 2015. I was surrounded by stars and was floating without much control. I will never forget the moment. I also felt an incredible sense of responsibility. Of course, I did not know that I was about to experience the most difficult moments of my life. Getting back into the capsule. When he attempted to re-enter the airlock leading to the space capsule, Leonov could not climb through the hatch. His spacesuit had expanded and become almost rigid. Near the end of my walk, he told the New York Times Magazine in 1994, I realized that my feet had pulled out of my shoes and my hands had pulled away from my gloves. My entire suit stretched so much that my hands and feet appeared to shrink. He decided that his only option was to open a valve to release air from inside his spacesuit. It deflated enough to allow Leonov to enter the capsule's airlock headfirst, but the change in pressure left him at risk of decompression sickness. His spacewalk lasted only 12 minutes, but his body temperature had risen so much that sweat was sloshing in the leggings of his spacesuit. I didn't report this down to Earth, he said. I knew the situation better than anyone else. It would be decades before the dangers he encountered were fully known. Leonov also revealed, years later, that he had a suicide pill in his helmet in case he could not return to the spacecraft. The existence of this pill was known to almost none of the specialists assisting the mission on the ground. They were kept completely in the dark, just as the public was kept in the dark about the potential catastrophe moments away from taking place above their heads. In his recently published book, Two Sides of the Moon, written with U.S. Apollo astronaut David Scott, Leonov recounted the spacewalk and its dramatic aftermath. When my four-year-old daughter, Vika, saw me take my first steps in space, she hid her face in her hands and cried, What is he doing? Tell Daddy to get back inside. My elderly father was upset, too, not understanding that the purpose of my mission was to show that man could survive in open space. He expressed his distress to journalists who had gathered at my parents' home. Why is he acting like a juvenile delinquent? He shouted in frustration. Everyone else can complete their mission properly inside the spacecraft. What is he doing clambering about outside? Somebody must tell him to get back in immediately. He must be punished for this. 
His anger soon gave way to pride when he heard a live broadcast of President Leonid Brezhnev's message of congratulations beamed up to me from the Kremlin via mission control. We members of the Politburo are sitting here watching what you are doing. We are proud of you, said Brezhnev. We wish you success. Take care. We await your safe arrival on Earth. As I pulled myself back toward the airlock, I heard Pasha talking to me. It's time to come back in. I realized I had been floating free in space for over ten minutes. In that moment, my mind flickered back for a second to my childhood, to my mother opening the window at home and calling to me as I played outside with my friends. Leosha, it's time to come inside now. With some reluctance, I acknowledged that it was time to re-enter the spacecraft. Our orbit would soon take us away from the sun and into darkness. It was then I realized how deformed my stiff spacesuit had become, owing to the lack of atmospheric pressure. My feet had pulled away from my boots and my fingers from the gloves attached to my sleeves making it impossible to re-enter the airlock feet first. I had to find another way of getting back inside quickly, and the only way I could see to do this was pulling myself into the airlock gradually head first. Even to do this, I would carefully have to bleed off some of the high-pressure oxygen in my suit via a valve in its lining. I knew I might be risking oxygen starvation, but I had no choice. If I did not re-enter the craft within the next 40 minutes, my life support would be spent anyway. The only solution was to reduce the pressure in my suit by opening the pressure valve and letting out a little oxygen at a time as I tried to inch inside the airlock. At first, I thought of reporting what I planned to do to Mission Control, but I decided against it. I did not want to create nervousness on the ground, and anyway, I was the only one who could bring the situation under control. But I could feel my temperature rising dangerously high, with a rush of heat from my feet traveling up my legs and arms due to the immense physical exertion all the maneuvering involved. It was taking far longer than it was supposed to, even when I at last managed to pull myself entirely into the airlock. I had to perform another, almost impossible maneuver. I had to curl my body around in order to close the airlock, so Pasha could activate the mechanism to equalize pressure between it and the spacecraft. Once Pasha was sure the hatch was closed, and the pressure had equalized, he triggered the inner hatch open and I scrambled back into the spacecraft, drenched with sweat, my heart racing. The serious problems I had encountered when re-entering the spacecraft were, thankfully, not televised. From the moment our mission looked to be in jeopardy, transmissions from our spacecraft which had been broadcast on both radio and television, were suddenly suspended without explanation. 
In their place, Mozart's Requiem was played again and again on state radio. My family was, thankfully, spared the anxiety they would have had to endure had they known how close I came to being stranded in space. They were also spared the trauma they would have suffered had they known the grave danger that Pasha and I faced in the hours that followed. For the difficulties I experienced re-entering the spacecraft were just the start of a series of dire emergencies that almost cost us our lives. Today's episode is brought to you by Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients. You see, Tito, eating food from nature doesn't always mean you have to go hunting for geckos in the garden. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo to shift the food industry and empower their community and our listeners to make better, informed choices about health. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that is why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% or 15% off for military, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Go to podco.co forward slash kind. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O forward slash K-I-N-D. Just five minutes before our retro engine was due to start dropping us out of orbit, I checked our instruments and realized our automatic guidance system for re-entry was not functioning correctly. We would have to switch off the automatic landing program. This meant we would have to orient the spacecraft before re-entry manually, and would also have to select our landing point manually and decide on the exact timing and duration of the retro rocket firing. We knew our landing would have to be performed during our next orbit, and that, despite our best efforts, we would be coming down off-target, 1,500 kilometers west of where we were supposed to land. As our orbit brought us above the Crimea, we received the first ground control communication we'd had in some time. How are you, Blondie? Where did you land? It was Yuri Gagarin. He always called me Blondie. It was good to hear his voice. Even in such difficult circumstances, he sounded full of warmth, even relaxed. But from what he was saying, it was clear Mission Control thought we had already landed. Pasha clicked on his microphone. We had to turn off the auto-landing system. We have only enough fuel to do one correction, and besides that, the indicator shows that the main engine for re-entry is very low on fuel. We can make only one attempt. We are asking you, therefore, to go into emergency mode. It was my job as navigator to determine where we would land. Our orbit would take us right over Moscow. We could set down in Red Square. But we had to choose somewhere as sparsely populated as possible. I decided on an area close to the city of Perm, 
just west of the Ural Mountains. Even if I miscalculated and our orbit took us beyond Perm, we should still be able to land in Soviet territory. We could not run the risk of overshooting so much that we came down in China. Relations with the People's Republic were poor at the time. Pasha began orienting the craft for re-entry. This was not easy. In order to use the optical device necessary for orientation, he had to lean horizontally across both seats in the spacecraft, while I held him steady in front of the porthole. We then had to maneuver ourselves back into correct positions in our seats very rapidly so that the spacecraft's center of gravity was correct. As soon as Pasha turned on the engines, we heard them roar and felt a strong jerk as they slowed the craft. According to our flight schedule, the landing module would separate from the orbital module 10 seconds after retrofire. I counted the seconds down in my head. But something was very wrong. It felt as if we were being dragged from behind, as if something was pulling us back. When we began to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, we started to feel gravity pulling us in the opposite direction. The conflicting forces, my instruments indicated 10 Gs, were so strong that some of the small blood vessels in our eyes burst. Looking out my window, I realized with horror what was happening. A communication cable connected the landing module with the orbital module, and as we rapidly entered the denser Earth atmosphere, the cable had become the two modules' common center of gravity, and we were spinning around it. The spinning eventually stopped at an altitude of 100 kilometers. When the connecting cable burnt through and our landing module slipped free, then we felt a sharp jolt as the first drogue chute and the landing chute deployed. Everything became very peaceful, very calm. We could hear and feel the wind whistling in the straps as the module swung gently on the landing chute. Suddenly, everything became dark. We had entered cloud cover. Then, it grew even darker. I started to worry that we had dropped into a deep gorge. There was a roaring as our landing engine ignited just above the ground to break the speed of our descent. Finally, we felt our spacecraft slumping to a halt. We had landed in two meters of thick snow. Our orientation system indicated that we had landed 2,000 kilometers beyond Perm in deepest Siberia. How soon do you think they'll pick us up? Pasha asked me, concerned. I tried to make light of our situation. In three months, maybe, they'll find us with dog sleds. We had to get out of the spacecraft to assess our location, but that was not easy. When we flicked the switch to open the landing hatch, the explosive bolts holding it shut were activated and a smell of gunpowder filled the cabin. But, though the hatch jerked, it failed to open. 
Looking out of the window, we could see the hatch was jammed against a big birch tree. We had no alternative but to start rocking the hatch violently back and forth, trying to shift it clear of the tree. Using all of his strength, Pasha managed to push the hatch away from the remains of the bolts, and it slid back and disappeared into the snow. We took in a deep draft of fresh air and felt our lungs contract with the sudden blast of cold. After so many emergencies, the relief at drawing breath on Earth again was indescribable. We threw our arms around each other, slapping each other on the back as best we could in our bulky spacesuits. We both squeezed out through the hatch and sank up to our chins in snow. Looking up, we could see we were in the middle of a thick forest, a taiga of fir and birch. I tried to determine our approximate location by measuring the sun's height above the horizon, but it soon disappeared behind the clouds. The sky grew darker and it started to snow, so we sought shelter back in the spacecraft. Fortunately, Pasha and I were used to harsh climates. He had been born in the Vologda region, north of Moscow, and had spent much of his childhood hunting in the forest close to home. His first ambition had been to become a hunter. Mine had been to become an artist. I had also spent my childhood in central Siberia. We were only too aware that Taiga, where we landed, was the habitat of bears and wolves. It was spring, the mating season, when both animals are at their most aggressive. We had only one pistol aboard our spacecraft, but we had plenty of ammunition. As the sky darkened, the trees started cracking with the drop in temperature a sound I was so familiar with from my childhood, and the wind began to howl. Even though Mission Control had no idea where we were or whether we had survived, our families were informed that we had landed safely and were resting in a secluded Dhaka before returning to Moscow. Our wives were advised to write us letters welcoming us home. We had no idea if our rescue signal had been received. It turned out later that Moscow had not received it, but it had been picked up by listening posts as far away as Bonn, Germany. More importantly, a cargo plane flying close to our landing site had also picked it up. A search party had been dispatched, and late in the afternoon, we picked up the sound of a helicopter approaching. We plowed through the thick snow into a clearing and stood waving our arms. The pilot spotted us, but we soon realized it was a civil aircraft, not a military one. He and his crew would have no idea how to rescue us. They saw it differently. Eager to help, they tossed a rope ladder down to us and signaled that we should grab it and clamber aboard. It was impossible. It was a flimsy ladder, and our spacesuits were too heavy and stiff to allow us to scale its rungs. 
As news of our whereabouts was relayed from pilot to pilot in the area, more aircraft started to circle above us. There were so many at one point we worried they would collide with one another. But the pilots meant well. A bottle of cognac was tossed out of one plane. It broke when it landed. A blunt axe was thrown from another. Of far more use were two pairs of wolfskin boots, thick pairs of trousers and jackets. The clothes got caught in branches, but we managed to retrieve the warm boots and pulled them on. But the light was failing fast, and we realized we would not be rescued that night. We would have to fend for ourselves as best we could. As it grew darker, the temperature dropped rapidly. The sweat that had filled my spacesuit while I was trying to re-enter the capsule after my spacewalk was sloshing around in my boots up to my knees. It was starting to chill me. I knew we would both risk frostbite if we did not get rid of the moisture in our suits. We had to strip naked, take off our underwear, and wring the moisture out of it. We then had to pour out what liquid had accumulated in our spacesuits. We went on to separate the rigid part of the suit from its softer lining. Nine layers of aluminum foil and a synthetic material called Deterone, and then put the softer part of the suits back on over our underwear and pull our boots and gloves back on. Now we could move more easily. We tried for a long time to pull our capsule's vast parachute out of the trees so we could use it as extra insulation. It was exhausting work, and we were forced to rest briefly in the snow but as it grew even darker, the temperature dropped further still, and it began to snow much more heavily. There was nothing to do but return to the capsule and try to keep as warm as we could. We had nothing to cover at the gaping hole left by the detached exit hatch, and we could feel our body heat dropping sharply as the temperature plummeted to below minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. The next morning, we woke to the sound of an airplane circling overhead. Above the roar of engines, we could just hear voices in the distance. I took a signal gun and fired a flare. Slowly, a small group of men on skis came into view. Led by local guides, the rescue party included two doctors, a fellow cosmonaut, and a cameraman who began filming as soon as he saw us. It was to be another 24 hours before another team of rescuers could chop down enough trees to make a clearing big enough for a helicopter to land. We would have to survive another night in the wild, but this night was a great deal more comfortable than the first. The advance party chopped wood and built a small log cabin and an enormous fire. They heated water for us to wash in a large tank flown in especially by a helicopter from Perm. And they laid out a supper of cheese, sausage, and bread. After three days with little food, it seemed like a feast. By the next morning, we were ready to ski nine kilometers to a clearing where a helicopter was standing by to fly us to Perm. 
From there, we were flown to our launch site at Baikonur, where we disembarked to find a large group waiting for us, headed by Sergei Korolev, our chief, and Yuri Gagarin. At first, they looked serious and seemed confused by our heavy jackets, polar hats, and wolfskin boots. But as we approached, their faces suddenly broke into broad smiles. We hugged each other, laughed, and joked. We were driven in an open-top jeep to the town of Leninsk, followed by a motorcade that stretched for several kilometers. A government committee was awaiting our arrival, ready with many questions about our 26-hour spaceflight. We had to deliver reports on how our mission had gone. Mine, it was brief and to the point. Provided with a special suit, man can survive and work in open space. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. Please consider giving us a cup of tea via the link in the show notes or going to buymeacoffee.com and searching for History Obscura. Good night! Good night.